0: There's a question at the dinner table that comes up regularly and all of us need to wrestle through. If you had a superpower, which power would it be? Now you don't get to say, I want to be Superman. That's a superhero. You don't get flight and speed and strength and x-ray vision. You get one superpower. And I don't want you to look around and be like, Dave, the average age in this room is a little bit older than you. No, no, no. Think. Unlike Joel, I believe there's great wisdom in this room, and you're going to work through this. Like Harvey Itterman, could you imagine having unbelievable accuracy? And you line up at a par three, and you say, have you guys ever seen a hole in one? One. Watch this, and boom, hole in one. Could you imagine that you have the power to read minds? And when your spouse gets home from work and you say to your spouse, how was your day? And your spouse says, fine. You automatically know everything was not fine. (laughs) They've had a bad day at work. Or maybe, maybe you have the superpower of teleportation. Could you imagine how great that would be? Who cares about flying? You say, I just want to go to Mexico. And you open a portal and you walk into Mexico. Have you seen gas prices? You wouldn't even need a car. You would open a portal straight to work, straight to the grocery store. It would be amazing. I'm 41 years old. I don't know when it happens, but I don't think it's ever going to end. Bending over to put on my socks is suddenly an event. (laughs) Imagine you had the superpower of regenerative healing. That would be awesome. There's so many things that we can have superpowers for. And you might be thinking, Dave, what on earth does this have to do with a sermon? Oh, it has everything to do with a sermon. Today, we are looking at the superhero in scripture, the person of Samson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the church family. Thank you for the times that we can laugh together, think together, and be wowed by incredible stories together. And Heavenly Father, as we open up the scriptures to read and to study and to see what it is that you have in store for us, may my words fall down and your words be lifted up, that your spirit would speak to every one of us in the way that we need this day. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. Joel already gave you a heads up. If you're in person, uh, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have one with you. If you don't have a Bible, you can always take your smartphone and download the app. That way you'll have a Bible with you in your pocket wherever you are at whatever time you need it to be. So one thing we need to know is that sometimes the Bible can be a little bit difficult to understand, a little bit hard, a little bit tricky, and Judges might be one of the most difficult books to understand. If you like to have God in a little bit of a box and think, this is how God operates, this is the actions that he takes, the book of Judges takes a piece of dynamite and throws it in that box and blows it all to smithereens. This story is wild. So here's how the Bible works. The opening five books of the Bible have a bunch of different names. Some people call it the law. Some people, the books of Moses, most commonly known as the Pentateuch. It means five books. Begins with Genesis. You have all these beginnings. Exodus starts with Moses being introduced, rescues God's people out of slavery and a journey towards the promised land. From Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we now end up at the cusp of the promised land. Moses takes the baton, he hands it to his protege Joshua and Joshua goes into the land of Canaan and the 12 tribes of Israel begin to take the land that was given to them from God. But at the end of Joshua, Joshua dies and there's nobody to take over. The book of Judges begins like this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites ask the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Now, the book of Judges has a number of Judges. There's about six of them that are really popular, a couple others that get literally one verse, maybe three or four verses. Um, But we begin to see a little bit of a cycle that takes place. Um, This picture is from the Gospel Project. They do incredible work, and I want to give credit where credit is due. The Israelites start to sin. um, A foreign army or a foreign nation oppresses them. Then they repent, and they cry out to God, God, please save us. God sends a deliverer. There is peace. And then the cycle begins All over again. This is what takes place over and over again in the book of Judges. Until chapter 13, the cycle is broken. There's still sin, there's still oppression, but for the first time, the nation of Israel does not cry out for help. For the first time, they have oppression over them, but they actually like it. And chapter 13 has this messianic piece to it. Let's read this. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. If you have grown up in church, you know this story well. You understand that this idea of a barren woman crying out to God happens time and time again. Early on in the book of Genesis, we have Abraham and Sarah and angels come to them and say, you will have a child, perhaps a little bit lesser known, but still of great importance. Samuel chapter one and Hannah, Samuel's mom, crying out to God, God, give me a son. And God gives her Samuel who anoints the first couple kings of Israel. You fast forward all the way to the New Testament and you get Matthew and you get Luke and uh, Mary is not crying out for a child, but an angel shows up and says, you will have a child. And so we arrive in Judges chapter 13 and we know something special is going to happen here. Something special is going to happen to this woman. Something special is going to happen from this child. What is going to take place? Verses four and five. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite uh, to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A savior is coming. Israel has not asked for it, but God will always, always rescue his people. Now, if you enjoy taking notes, you're going to want to take this down. There is a Nazarite vow that is taking place here. And there's three things. There's more than that, but there's three things we're going to look at today that Nazarites are not allowed to do. A Nazarite must not touch a dead body. A Nazarite must not drink alcohol. And a Nazarite must not cut their hair. We know that something special is happening. We know we're standing on the precipice of greatness. Something is going to happen. But what is it? Chapter 14, verses one to three. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? that you must go take a wife for the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now time out. This is not a savior that anyone is expecting. An angel of the Lord showed up to Samson's parents. An angel of the Lord said, this man will begin to save you from the nation of the Philistines. Well, then why would he want to go intermarry with the Philistines? Doesn't he know the books of Moses that we taught him, that Moses says, you shall not have interfaith marriages? And if that weren't enough, Samson walks up to his dad and says, get her for me. Now, I don't know what your house was like growing up, but growing up in the 80s as a German Mennonite, I didn't command my dad to do anything. (laughs) This story is 3,000 years old. Even more so back then, you don't command your parents to do anything. And yet, an angel showed up and said to Samson's parents, Your son will begin to be the savior of Israel you enjoy taking notes it starts with this samson is an incredibly unlikely savior remember that cute little box that so many of us keep god and the first stick of dynamite is being thrown and it is getting blown up verse 4 is the key that unlocks the entire chapter of 14 his father and mother did not know that it was from the lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the philistines at this time the philistines ruled over israel But do you see how wild this is? We start to get a glimpse of Samson's character flaws. This is a man who wants to intermarry with somebody of a completely different faith. This is a man who has a great sexual appetite. This is a man who's vindictive. It's a man with great temper. And he is saying, I want that, go get it for me. And yet God is using him not just in spite of his sin, but through his sin. It's wild, Now we've heard some great stories already during this sermon series on summer blockbusters. We've learned from Hosea who loves his wife so much that even though she is regularly cheating on him, he is going back to buy her for himself. We've heard of Elijah who stands by himself against 450 priests of Baal. And while the sermon series is all about Old Testament stories, we can think about New Testament stories as well. And we think of John the Baptist who is a man of incredible integrity, We can think of the Apostle Paul who goes on these wonderful missionary journeys or the Apostle Peter who preaches and thousands of people come to faith. And then we read about Samson, a sex addict, thrill-seeking man-hulk. And God says, he's gonna save Israel. But even if this story rattles us a little bit, the big idea is fantastic. The story teaches us that God uses flawed people like you and me to accomplish his will. On his way down to set up the arranged marriage, Samson is attacked by a young lion, and we see the first uh, picture of his great strength. In verse six, we read, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. A little while later, Samson is going back to to, Timnah for the marriage feast, and he sees this lion, and he touches this dead lion's carcass because there's bees inside and he takes it up to Timnah. And so he breaks that first Nazarite vow that he must not touch a dead body, but he doesn't care. Then he arrives at at Timnah and there is a feast, but not just any feast. The original Hebrew says that this is a mishta. It means that there's a feast with all sorts of alcohol. And so now he's breaking the second part of that Nazarite vow. And we recognize Samson is nothing like the person we expect him to be. Verses 11 to 15, we see what's about to take place. As soon as the people saw him, they, uh, pardon me, I forgot a piece. As soon as the people saw him, they brought with them companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes yourself. And they said to him, put your riddle that we might hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. But in three days, they could not solve the riddle. The men, however, could not accept defeat at this hand of this insignificant Israelite. And so they pull aside his bride and say, do whatever it takes, seduce him. Use your emotional um, working on him. But whatever you need to do, find out the answer to this riddle. And if you don't, we will burn you and your dad to the ground. Well, losing the riddle would have cost each of them a set of clothes. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but it would have made an Israelite incredibly wealthy. But for Samson, something else is going on. If the Philistines answer the riddle, where is he going to find 30 pieces of clothing? The average person of the day only had two. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him after, he cheated, uh, after the Israel- Philistines cheated and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In his hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Samson is an unlikely savior. We expect a savior to look different. We expect a, a savior to look like a televangelist with that million dollar smile. We expect a savior to look like a politician who is um, suave and, and speaks well and is a blessing to everybody. We don't expect a savior to look like a guy in ripped jeans with a neck tattoo, telling everybody how he's supposed to do his work and swearing while he does it. And the Israelites are confused. This is an unlikely savior. How is this possible? How does this work this way? During the American Civil War, a man came to see Lincoln, a man by the name of Mr. McClure. And he said, at a recent battle, one of your generals got drunk and the people are losing all sort of faith in him. But this man didn't show up at regular visiting hours. He showed up at about 11 p.m. at night for the next two hours, said to Lincoln, you have to get rid of him. People don't trust him. People will not work with him. People will not follow him if he continues to drink so rapidly. For two hours, he pled his case. And for two hours, Lincoln said, almost nothing. This man, Mr. McClure, writes in his own hand, After nearly two hours of me pressing the president to remove this individual, Lincoln finally stood up and said, our time here is done. I keep him. He fights. This man became the 18th president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. Do you know why God needs to raise up an unlikely savior? Because the people have simply accepted their bondage. This is a fascinating um, and stands as a reminder to us. If we go back to that cycle that we looked at earlier, remember that for the first number of judges, there was sin, there was oppression. Then the people repented before God sent the savior. But the Israelites are thinking, oh, this Philistine rule is pretty good. We have our own farms. We have our own land. We intermarry, we interworship. It's a great time together. Why would we need God to rescue us? But God understood that if he waits a couple generations, the whole um, Jewish community would not exist any longer. They would be so intermingled that God had to do something. He had to send somebody to come in and help them recognize that this bondage is happening and has to come to an end. Chapter 15, verses one to five. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I, gave you to your com- so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Can you imagine how angry the Philistines must be? They have just lost their entire crop. And so they start to do a little bit of investigating. Does anybody know who burned our crop to the ground? And the Philistines said, well, it was Samson, the man who was supposed to marry the Timnite girl. And so the Philistines take the Timnite girl and her dad and they burn her to the ground. At this point, we have to hit a pause button and recognize there's a much bigger picture going on. Originally, I was gonna do just one of the Samson stories, but the four chapters combined, I thought, were so good. There's such a great story here. We have to look at it. The violence each time ratchets up. The retaliation keeps coming time and time and time again. There's no forgiveness, no reconciliation. One commentator calls this the solution failure episodes. You solve my riddle, I kill 30 of your men. my father-in-law sends me away from the house, I'm gonna burn your fields down. You burn my wife and my father-in-law, I'm going to kill a group of men. Samson is a very unlikely hero, but God is using all of this to fulfill his purpose and each time it ratchets up. At the wedding feast, a few dozen people. Afterwards, a community is involved. Now an entire nation has recognized Samson is a problem. We need to do something about this guy. The Philistine army gathers Israel um, towards Israel, but rather than attacking Israel, the entire army says, bring us Samson. If you bring us Samson, we will simply let you go. Verse four unlocks chapter 14. Verse 11 unlocks chapter 15. Listen carefully. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Two things. One, Samson is incredibly strong. He's ripped a lion apart. He's killed 30 people. He's killed an entire group of men. So it's not just 20 people who go to see Samson. A couple thousand Israelites say, Will you come with us? Will you allow us to wrap you up and hand you over to the Philistines? Now Samson is strong, we understand that. But the real point here is that the Philistines have accepted, uh, pardon me, the Israelites have accepted their bondage. They can't imagine something greater than the status quo. God has sent them a savior and all they see is a threat to their peace. I really appreciate how Dale Ralph Davis says this. Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh, but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines. And we read this story and we think, well, Whose side would we be on? And this is something that I think we need to wrestle with. Would you be on the side of Samson, the one Israelite who's standing against the Philistines, or would you be on the side of all of the Israelites who are going, everything is fine? And as much as it humbles me to say it, I know whose side I would be on. I'd be with all the Israelites. Everything is okay here. Why do we need to ruffle feathers? Why do we need to change things? The status quo is just fine. Another commentator, Michael Wilcock, writes these sobering words There is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. Where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. And so God raises up Samson because the Jews are so comfortable. We'll intermarry, we'll mingle with one another, we'll worship your gods, you can worship our gods. What difference does it make? Everything here is fine. But in a couple generations, the entire Jewish faith would have been lost. This isn't a war about military strength. This is a war about the Jewish culture being under attack. So what about us? When we look around, is there this bondage that we accept here in 2022 here in Canada? Is there something that we just think, oh, that's just the way it is. It's totally fine. There are two main institutions that track abortion stats in the states, the CDC and the Guttmacher. Before I tell you some of these statistics, I need to give you some perspective. During World War II, six million Jews were killed. Over the last 20 years, not since the beginning of Roe and Wade, but over the last 20 years, um, the CDC, which is the more conservative of the two groups, says 15 million babies have been murdered in the United States. Guttmacher says, oh no, no, that number is actually closer to 20 million. And so over the last few weeks, maybe over the last month, we've been enthralled with what's happening south of the border and the Roe v. Wade and going, what difference is it going to make? And if your Facebook feed, your social media feed looks anything like mine, I have a bunch of Christian friends and I have a bunch of friends who aren't yet Christians and the responses are totally different. First thing first, if you are in this room And you've had an abortion, or you are close to somebody who has had an abortion, we love first. We encourage, we support, we walk them through what must have been an incredibly difficult decision. Second thing who stands up and says, we can't allow this to happen anymore? We look down at the states and go, wow, that is polarizing down there. Did you know that Canada doesn't have any abortion laws whatsoever? And if we are a church that cares about young families, are we going to say, we are going to work with the Pregnancy Care Center, we are going to work with Adira, we are going to welcome single parents and young moms and girls who are confused about what to do with their pregnancy and say, we will love you so well that you are going to tell your friends how deeply cared for you are at Ellerslie Baptist but will somebody stand up? And it might look different. That person might be an unlikely savior. It might not be the Pope in a couple of weeks. It might be somebody who looks different. It might be a highly powerful woman who's a CEO at a law firm that says enough is enough. It might be somebody who's a little bit brash and maybe swears too much and maybe doesn't say things or do things the way we expect them to do, to say, We can't have this any longer. Somebody needs to stand up for the people who cannot speak for themselves. There's other things I can talk about besides. But do we accept the bondage that's already here or are we going to stand up and fight? How is the North American church going to respond? Is this just normal and therefore it is the way it is? Or do we say, no, there's a better way. The Philistines figured they had a solution to quiet down Samson who is causing all this problem. Have the Jews tie him up and have him hand him over to us. But the whole solution failure episode is going to go very poorly for them. Being bound in rope, Samson was handed over to the Philistines. And this is what we read in verse 14. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's not the first time we've heard that. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and the bonds melted off his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put his hand on it and struck down a thousand men. This is the third time we've heard that phrase, the spirit of the Lord. The first time was when the lion came up and he uh, ripped the lion apart. The second time was what caused him to go down and kill 30 Philistines. In all three of these instances, God is the instigator. The problem is, Samson's enjoying this. I am a modern day superhero. People quake when I am around them. People fawn over me. This is great. And it leads to the third and final point. There's a danger of success. Chapter 13, pardon me, chapter 16, one to three. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. So they surrounded the place, set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he rose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, pulled them up, bar and all and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. The pattern is deepening. Samson's behavior is more reckless than ever. He knows that he's hated by the Philistines yet he goes to Gaza, the capital of Philistia. He doesn't care. He was married to a Philistine girl. Now he's going and seeking out Philistine prostitutes. People were trying to attack him up front. Now they're being more covert. He's flirting with disaster. Now the purpose of the story isn't Samson is strong. But let's pause for a moment and recognize this man really is a superhero. I looked for this picture for way too long. And it's the best one I could come up with. These gates were to the capital city of Gaza. These gates would have been two to three stories high. The picture on the screen behind me is from Mark Lee. He builds these sets for Star Wars and other major places. This is not an actual picture of the Gate of Gaza. They didn't have HD cameras back then. Three stories high. This would probably weigh north of 1,000 pounds. I can't pull a fence post out of the ground. This man is yanking two posts out, the doors that were three stories high, the guard towers that go with it and hauled it miles away up to a hill. Dude is ripped. But that's the problem. He knew he could get away with it. And the spirit of the Lord is not present in this passage. This warning is deeply personal. How many times do we know something is wrong, yet we've never been caught, so we keep doing it? How many of us are functional alcoholics? And we think, ah, if I have a dozen beer tonight, nothing happens. I'm still a good person, no big deal. I've had a dozen beer on Monday night, I've had a dozen beer Tuesday night, I've had a dozen beer Wednesday night. You know, I've been doing a dozen beer for a few months now. What happens if I take a little Mickey to work? Nobody ever checks my desk drawer. I could probably sip some into my coffee. I could probably take a couple swigs and throw in a breath mint. No one's gonna know. Maybe you get away with verbal abuse at work because you are so good at your job and everybody hates you. Your coworkers hate you. Your boss wants to get rid of you, but you're so valuable to the company, he just can't do it. And so you just keep abusing people and you know what? Maybe that abuse goes a little bit more. Maybe you start yelling at your boss now too. Maybe you take advantage of one of the younger staff members. Maybe you cheated on a test and you thought, wow, that was surprisingly easy. Nobody caught me. Got a better mark. It's gonna help me get into a better college. You know, I've been cheating on my taxes now three years in a row and nothing has happened. They always say you shouldn't, but you know, I serve tables and nobody knows how many tips I make. There's a real danger to success, especially if it gives you the thrill. For the third time in this narrative, he gets tangled up with a woman and now the Philistine lords have heard about it. So they put this attractive young woman, pull this attractive young woman aside and say to her, verse five, I'm paraphrasing, Delilah, if you can seduce Samson... If you can figure out what gives him all of his strength, we will give you, I've done the math, 15 years wages. Now for Delilah, this isn't just about the money. This is about fame. This is about the one who brought down Samson. This is about influence with the five Philistine lords who are each offering me three years salary, no questions asked, just find out how Samson is so strong. From verses 6 to 14, Delilah asks three times about the source of Samson's strength. And Samson gives her three different things tie me up with fresh bowstrings, tie me up with rope, tie up my hair. And each time she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He gets up and he tears the Philistines apart. But now Delilah isn't happy with him. Verse 16, chapter 16, picking up in verse 15. She said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up. He has told me his heart. We read this and think to ourselves, Samson, how could you be so stupid? You told him, you told her, tie me up with flax and all my strength will be gone. It wasn't. Tie me up with rope and all my strength will be gone. It wasn't. Tie up my hair in a loom, all my strength will be gone. It wasn't. But she tried every time. Samson, why would you do this? It's because of the danger of success. But if that's not enough for you, I'm sure the sex was great. I'm sure being with the hottest girl of all of Philistia, people looked at him and said, wow, what a lucky guy for someone who has been thrill-seeking for all of his life, tearing lions apart, beating the Philistines with a jawbone, catching foxes and letting them go in the field. There's something that's a bit of an adrenaline rush. And oh yeah, you're pretty much invincible. Nobody can take you down. So of course he's gonna say something. Verses 19 to 22. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him. It basically means to seduce him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke up from his sleep and said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. You remember the Nazarite vow? Samson, don't touch a dead body. Did that. Samson, don't drink any alcohol. Did that. Samson, you cannot cut your hair. Did that. Three strikes, Samson, you're out. And the favor of the Lord had left him. Samson came to believe that the strength was his and he couldn't lose it. He had touched a dead body. He still had his strength. He had drinking and alcohol. He had still had his strength. Of course, if his hair gets cut, why would his strength leave him now? But that wasn't the case. The spirit of the Lord had left him. But there's another element of this story. The solution and then the failure. And the Philistines thought they had found that final solution in all of this four chapter narrative. We have cut his hair everything is fine. What could possibly go wrong? The last part of chapter 16, picking up in verse 27. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called out to the Lord, this is the first time, and said with faith, O Lord God, Please remember me, please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. This is fascinating. Here is Samson, a sex addict, thrill-seeking man-hulk, And God looks at him and says, I can use a man just like that. What? You have that box that God exists in and you just threw dynamite at it and he blew it up. Can you imagine that in 2022? How many church leaders fall because of moral failure all the time? The Me Too movement that hasn't taken place, uh, that wasn't there 3,000 years ago, the corporate espionage, every one of these would have put Samson in a pit and we would have never heard from him again. And that's exactly the point. As followers of Christ, we rejoice that at the bottom of the pit, God still hears us. At the bottom of the pit, in the Philistine temple of Dagon, there is a God who hears us, a God who loves us, a God who rescues us. Samson is an anti-hero, and yet he makes it into the hall of fame. Hebrews 11, picking up in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. What does the Samson narrative teach us? Four words. God uses flawed people. How great is this news that God uses flawed people like you and me, that God is saying, I know what's going on in your life. I know the challenges you have. I know what you've done in the past. I can still use you and I'm going to use you in powerful, life-changing ways. Samson is not the savior of Israel, but he gives us a picture of what the savior looks like. This is fascinating. There are, I can't remember if there's five or six. There's six main judges in Israel. There's others, but six main judges. The first judges, Othniel and Ehud, the whole nation of Israel is supporting them. Then you have a judge like Deborah and a number of tribes come and support her. And then you have a judge like Gideon that has 300 supporters. And then you have Samson who stands by himself. Samson is not the savior of Israel, but he is a savior of Israel. Think about the similarities between Samson and Jesus. And certainly there are a lot of differences, but think about the similarities. Jesus and Samson were both betrayed by somebody who was close to them. Jesus and Samson were both handed over to Gentiles to be killed. Jesus and Samson both tortured, chained, and mocked for the entertainment of the people. Samson and Jesus both died and brought the death of their enemy with them. But thankfully, Jesus is so much greater than Samson. Samson's story is a powerful one indeed, but at the end of Samson's death, we don't hear from him again until Hebrews chapter 11. But at Jesus' death, it's just the beginning. And 50 days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of Pentecost All the Jews that are gathered together in Jerusalem for the greatest, one of the great celebrations in the Jewish calendar. The Holy Spirit descends and the Apostle Peter comes out and he says, God will use flawed people just like you and just like me. It's the only plan God has. That we are the people who are to go out into the world to tell the good news about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what incredible news that you use flawed people just like us. And as we read the story of Samson, as we hear some of these other summer blockbusters, may we be reminded that it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. God can still use us. And that whether we're serving in the local church, whether we do wonderful things in the business, the organization, the school, the community that you place us, that we will do great works for the good news of Jesus and that your name will be celebrated throughout. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.